Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Romans chapter 13, St. Paul dismantles the authority of Caesar by reframing Caesar's value. Caesar is not important because of his station or the might of Rome. He is useful, however, because his station can be used by God to further the cause of the gospel. In other words, Caesar is God's pawn. So when Christians are confronted by a tyrant, they must assume that they are dealing not with the tyrant himself, but with the one who is using the tyrant. So when faced with taxation under the boot of Caesar in Matthew chapter 17, Peter need only ask one question. How can I use the opportunity of this tax to further the cause of the gospel? Richard and I discuss the gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. This year's Biblical Symposium of the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies will be held online Saturday, June 13, 2020. Space is limited to 100 attendees, so register today by going to ephesusschool.org. Father William Mills, author of Losing My Religion, is the featured keynote speaker. Other presenters include the Very Reverend Dr. Paul Nadim Tarazi, Dr. Nikolai Roddy, Professor of Hebrew Bible and Old Testament at Creighton University, and Dr. Richard Benton and Father Mark Bulos of the Bible as Literature podcast. Register today by going to ephesusschool.org. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 329 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The desire to impose an ideology on others or to win an ideological battle stems from the placing of value on something other than what truly matters. If you see a person walking down the street wearing a yarmulke, or a hijab, or a cross, you should know from your formation as a disciple of Jesus or a student of St. Paul's letters that what they're wearing can't impact your attitude or behavior towards them in a negative way. But because we impose ideology on the world, if someone wears a garment or some external marker, say, for instance, a mask to protect others from infection, we take it as an offensive symbol because it contradicts our desire to impose an ideology. We want control. We want power. Scripture teaches us not to care about 
ideology, not to care about worldly things that have no value from the perspective of the kingdom. It sets us free. This is how it works in everyday life. When you care about stupid things, you fight with your spouse. When you don't care about stupid things, the only time you have conflict with your spouse is when you lose self-control or when something important is at stake. Scripture devalues earthly institutions. It devalues the authority of the king. It devalues them in the way that Paul addresses the authority of government in Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13, if Caesar imposes on you a law that goes against love, where you are not allowed to love, then the law of love supersedes it. If your spouse wants you to do something and it doesn't go against the law of love, you're bound to do it because of the law of love. If you love your spouse, what is there to argue about? The only thing left to argue about is love. Is this a loving act or is it not? This sounds easy, you know? This is like taking the nice quotes from Martin Luther King and playing them ad nauseum on Martin Luther King Day, but not the implications of taking care of the downtrodden and caring about justice. If you actually care what love dictates, then you understand why the Son of Man must suffer and die, because the Son of Man must follow the law of love. This is the situation that Jesus is dragging his disciples through, kicking and screaming. They don't want to follow the law of love. They want to follow, as you said, Father, ideologies. They want to be right. They want to protect themselves. They want to protect the clan. They want to protect their biology. And Jesus keeps telling them, by the way, I don't care about protecting my biology. The only law that Jesus the Son of Man is going to follow, is the law of love, and that's it. In Romans chapter 13, Paul lays out the case that the reason you should listen to the authorities is because they don't matter. It's exactly the opposite of what fundamentalists are trying to do when they co-opt Paul's statement about governing authorities to establish their own authority. They're twisting his words to say that their authority is important and relevant. Paul is saying, since it doesn't matter, just take it as an opportunity to serve the crucified Messiah in the way that you submit to authority. We've rehashed this over and over again with respect to the Roman household. And that's why Father Paul likes to say, with respect to Romans chapter 13, that where the worldly authorities control you with death and taxes, Paul usurps their control. And he says it's not death and taxes, it's love and taxes so that you don't have to die under the boot of Caesar. Now, how you can twist that into let's all hold hands and adore the boot of Caesar is beyond my comprehension. It prevents you from disregarding human institutions the way that people do today for ideological reasons, because the law of love doesn't allow you to disregard anyone, but you're not showing regard because of their value. You show regard out of deference to Christ. That's the key. Because if you show deference for any other reason, all you have left is systematic 
sycophancy and abuse. That's what happens when the deference you show is towards human authority. And people hate this because it undermines the authority of the institution they happen to consider important. There is no important institution. There is no important human authority. There is only one authority, and that is the Father of Jesus. And your freedom from death under the boot of Caesar is through his Torah. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Peter is getting confronted on three counts. Number one, who wants to part with their money? Number two, if he's interested in a worldly Messiah and a worldly victory, why the heck should he pay a tax to Caesar? And number three, this makes Jesus look bad, which makes Peter look bad. Peter, is it a pickle? Is it love to pay Caesar? I am a subject of God, not of Caesar, so why would I pay Caesar's tax? I don't respect Caesar's law. He's not my Caesar. My Caesar is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the father of Jesus. That's who I believe in, so it doesn't make any sense. Why would I pay his tax? Why would I give my money to him? I would put it towards my cause, which is to love my neighbor. I'm not going to give money to Caesar that I could give to the poor that I could give to people who actually need it. I mean, for Caesar to fight one more war in Germania, does he need my two drachmas? I mean, for heaven's sake. But remembering Romans 13, the law of love supersedes anything. If Caesar is passing laws and Paul is saying that you need to follow these laws, then Peter, you follow the earthly ruler's laws precisely because they don't matter. Running afoul of Caesar when it doesn't make any difference doesn't help anything. If your spouse gets frustrated when you put the spoon on the wrong side of the plate and this irritates you, Paul in 1 Corinthians would say, tough luck. If you know it doesn't matter where the spoon goes, what is it you're arguing about? Now, the genius of Paul's teaching, which is reflected here in Matthew, is that it applies to something as silly as the placement of a spoon or something as difficult as taxation. Nobody likes paying taxes. Everybody has an opinion about what the government should do with their money. And in the case of late antiquity, for a Jew like Peter, it's a really serious question about loyalty. Where do your loyalties lie? The genius of Paul, again, is that Peter's question about his loyalty with respect to Caesar or the God of Abraham is no different than the question of loyalty that a slave in a Roman household faces. When you're under the boot of an oppressor, how do you show loyalty to God? That is the question that we're dealing with. And it's a very serious one, because if Peter responds as an ideological revolutionary and decides to start throwing stones at the Romans, it'll feel good, and it'll seem like he's on God's side, but the reality is he will be a transgressor of the law which overcomes death through the law of love. And we all know from Deuteronomy that the curse of the law is death. Meaning if you don't obey the law, you die. And here in Matthew, 
this story is reflecting Paul's explanation of Deuteronomy or reproclamation of Deuteronomy in a Roman context. He said, yes, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? It's a logic trap that hinges on the Lord's premise that the power of Caesar is irrelevant. He's setting Peter up for a what's-it-to-you-anyways argument. What do you care? Just move the spoon to the other side of the plate if it will calm your spouse down. It feels to me when Peter just gives the quick yes and then moves along. He's, in typical Peter fashion, a little bit skittish. He has to speak on behalf of his teacher. That's that's already a pretty thin limb. He shouldn't go far out on that limb. But we also know that he gets scared easily. Later on in the book, he quickly denies any association with Jesus. He's really scared to run afoul of the authorities. So, of course, he's going to say yes. Of course, he's going to go back to Jesus and say that's what you teach, right? <laughs> because it's so easy for Peter to mess it up, and at least Peter is getting it. I mean, in the last passage where finally the disciples felt sad that Jesus was going to die rather than try to argue with them shows that they're making progress, Peter is finally wrapping his head around the teaching, knowing that it goes against what he thinks makes sense. Jesus asked this question, who are they taking the taxes from? For Peter, interesting he uses his Jewish name, Simon. For Simon, the one who hears, the natural reaction, just like any revolutionary, is we don't belong to this Caesar, therefore we're not toadies and we're not going to give him his money. I'm not going to give my money to that guy. What Jesus is implying is, of course, you are being asked to pay taxes precisely because you are not Caesar's. Caesar does not ask his wife to pay taxes. So if you're paying taxes, you know you're not in his house. You're not one of his. So rather than not pay taxes like Henry David Thoreau to show that you're not part of this government, Jesus is saying, if you're not part of it, That's why you have to pay taxes. This turns the revolutionary ideology on its head. You are asked to pay taxes precisely because you're not an insider. People are upset in our day and age. Why do these big companies not have to pay taxes? How come they don't have to contribute when I have to contribute? Because rich and powerful people have rich and powerful friends, and they're on the inside. You pay taxes precisely because you're not one of the rich and powerful. And I don't think that's really too far of a stretch for most people to wrap their heads around. So, Peter, pay your taxes precisely because you're on the outside. When Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. The question here, Peter, is who is your father? Are you a son of Caesar? Or are you a son of the God of Abraham? If you're a son of the God of Abraham, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then you should be concerned about what is required of you in that household by that king. 
the very fact that we're having a discussion about whether or not to pay the tax tells me that you're confused about who your real father is. You're a son of the kingdom, which means you are subject to its law, and its law compels you to submit to Caesar out of deference to Christ so that through love and taxes you can be saved from death under the boot of Caesar. There has never been and never will be a form of defiance of tyranny as ingenious as the biblical school. It disempowers the one resisting while disempowering the tyrant. It's a stroke of genius. People from all walks of life, all stations, and all classes are angry at everybody else because the human ways in which we resist elevate our power. The cross is the ultimate symbol of resistance and the ultimate symbol of victory in a way that no other symbol can be because it cancels out the one who is defying tyranny because the defiance is made as a gesture of love. No greater love can a man have than to give his life for his friends. It's so simple, but so unattractive, as we heard in verse 23, because it's much more exciting to fight Caesar than it is to allow God to defeat him through your submission. The tax doesn't matter, so just pay it, Peter. I think a lot of people misunderstand this passage. When I look at translations, when Jesus says the children are free, he's not talking about the children of God. He's talking about the children of Caesar. If you want to be free of the taxes, then you have to become one of them. So stay on our side and pay the taxes. I'm going to just echo your words, Father. What's the big deal? If you don't believe that Trump is your president, if you don't believe that Obama is your president, what they say is irrelevant, so I'll just do it and whatever. I'll get on with my life. That's the exact opposite of what you hear. If you disagree with Trump, fine, say he's not my president, and then do everything he tells you to do. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly makes the point that the real sin is offending the neighbor. And all of the religious people in this country who are huffing and puffing about whatever point they're trying to prove and whoever they think they're fighting, they all need to read 1 Corinthians aloud until they lose their voice from repeating it. In every single pastoral example in that epistle, no matter what the issue, it doesn't matter. Paul's not dealing with issues in 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with one issue, which is love. He has no regard for philosophy or sophism, which he attacks on 1 Corinthians, and he has no regard for petty discussions about anything. All he cares is that you don't offend your neighbor. 
it's such a powerful stance. Usually we boil things down to murder and abuse and persecution. He won't even let you offend the conscience of your neighbor. So in every pastoral example, his solution is simple. Lose. I'm arguing with my spouse. Lose. I have a dispute at church. Lose. I have a conflict with someone or this came up. Well, then just lose. What are you arguing about? That's what Jesus is saying here. It's not just what are you arguing about? Who cares? It's how dare you offend them and make an issue out of something that's not an issue. So make sure that they know that when you pay taxes, you're not just paying taxes to Caesar for you, Simon. You're paying for me, the anointed one, the king of Israel, the representative of God the Father. I'm paying taxes because the Torah demands of me that I give no offense to my neighbor, not even to Caesar. So that we don't offend them so that we don't scandalize them. Jesus consistently uses this word scandalize when he talks about confusing the message. He is only teaching a law of love. He's not teaching a law of rebellion. He's teaching about a God who provides all things. When you talk about who you give your money to, can we talk about the your for a minute? We talked about the money. We talked about the giving. Let's talk about the your. Your money. Really? God put Caesar in place, and God put money in your bank account. God put the IRS in place. You are bound to pay the taxes that God has commanded you to pay with the money that God gave you. Just go catch a fish (laughs) and get the money out of the fish. The money isn't even ours anyway. I've heard a lot of talk like, you know, we're stewards of money and the money that God gives us, we have a responsibility to use it responsibly, blah, blah, blah. It's not use it responsibly. It's use it according to love. And love denies the necessity of one's biological being. So you go and you give the money where you're commanded to give it. And it's that simple. The fish is the catch. The catch is the disciple the one whom you were sent to evangelize, whom you've not been evangelizing as Jesus commanded you, Peter. Hearkening back to last week's discussion about their inability to cure someone because they weren't teaching not even a small mustard seed of the instruction. And the money is provided to you so that you can do the work of teaching. Everything you have, as you said, Richard, God gives you money, God gives you Caesar. God gives you an opportunity in Caesar to demonstrate the law of love. So what are you saving money for? Just give him the money and put it to the use God intended, which is the proclamation of the gospel. It's a gift. The disciple is a gift. The resources to serve the disciple are a gift given for a purpose— And in Romans chapter 13, that purpose is to show respect to everybody. And the way that Paul says respect to whom respect is due is, again, very clever. Because you don't respect Caesar, you respect God. And you respect God by respecting Caesar's station for God's purpose, which is the proclamation 
of the law of love. Peter, you don't have to figure out the system. You don't have to buck the system. You don't have to destroy the system. You follow God's system. God's system runs off of love and faith. You trust in God who provides all things. And because you trust that you have all the things necessary, you love and you teach the teaching of the Father. It's that simple. They couldn't wrap their heads around faith. That's why Jesus had to talk to them about the healing. Now, Peter doesn't understand that it's God who provides, not so that they can thumb their nose at Caesar, but so they can do precisely what Caesar asks of them, recognizing that they're only being asked to do so because they do not belong to Caesar. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.